Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know if you've heard this story before or not, but in 1917 to 1920, there was a series of pictures that was released uh, in a, a magazine called The Strand Magazine. I believe it's out of England. And these fairies, these pictures became known as the Cottingley Fairies. In fact, there's some uh, pictures on our slides here this morning. These are pictures from taken in 1917. They uh, kind of became like wildfire here. They uh, introduced all kinds of speculation about the presence of various small woodland creatures and everything else, right? Again, notoriety first as these pictures that were taken by uh, two young women, Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths, who were like nine and 16 years old, uh, introduced them at a, a local kind of uh, gathering. And sure enough, they kind of caught fire, as it were. They went viral in 1917 or whatever you want to say. And in 1920, they were produced in this magazine, the Strand Magazine. Well, what happens is that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of the Sherlock Holmes books, uh, he's a spiritualist, and he gets wind of this, and he starts uh, propagating this truth that fairies are real and that they exist and all of these other things. And so you have this kind of swelling of movement that all of a sudden we understand now that fairies actually existed. It wasn't until 1983 that these two girls who were cousins admitted that they had fabricated the whole thing. They had taken their father's camera, who he had a dark room, and they had produced these little models, and sure enough, they had kind of duped everyone into believing this. But it highlights something for us, doesn't it? You and I, this morning, aren't all that different than those who would believe the fairy stories or whatever else. We're looking for something bigger, something outside of ourselves. We have this preoccupation with otherworldly things. We're convinced that there are things in existence, maybe not fairies, but uh, things outside of us. We're uh, tied to a, many of us, whether we recognize it or not, a spiritualized world. The modern world wants to tell us that this isn't true, that there is no such thing as spiritual realities outside of ourselves and, and, and kind of uh, want to push back at that. But for us, I think we know that. The Ecclesiastes says that we have eternity bound up in our hearts, not just that we uh, kind of have this longing for eternal life, but we actually have this in mind, for this desire for something bigger than us. And this morning, when we come to Luke chapter 2, this passage traffics in glory. It traffics in otherworldly principles. It shows us kind of, it pulls back the veil, as it were, between our physical world, our physical reality, and shows us the spiritual realities that exist behind it. It's, it's kind of like the Cottingley fairies, but for real, right? As we look at Luke chapter 2, I think we're going to see this, that beholding glory changes us. Many of us here this morning, we, we long for this introduction into this larger world than ourselves, to, to know that there's more than just the, the atoms around us, to know that there's more than just the materials around us, that we're introduced to this world where we want to behold something glorious. And so beholding glory isn't just something that draws us into a different reality. It actually changes us and shapes us and forms us. We're going to see this in three different movements in our text this morning. 
verses 1 through 7, we're going to see that we're drawn to false glory as we hear about uh, this character named Caesar Augustus, and we'll kind of break that down. But verses 8 through 14, we're going to see that true glory has been announced. We'll hear that from the angelic presence there in those verses. And then in verses 15 through 20, uh, true glory prompts us to respond. I'm going to invite you just to kind of hear this message this morning. I'll be honest, I'm going to be frank with you. I've kind of been running away from this sermon all week. I've been trying to find its meaning and been absent of its meeting with the Lord. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You sit down with the Scripture passage. You kind of want to understand what it says, but you aren't ready to meet with the Lord who gave it to us. And I want to take just uh, give an advanced warning this morning. Let's not walk away from this text and not meet with our Savior and His glorious nature. Right. So let's dive in. In verses 1-7, through seven, Luke records this for us. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went out to be registered, registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. What's happening here? First, let's talk about this character, Caesar Augustus, right? In verse 1, we're told that Caesar is going to take this census, and he's asking for all of these people throughout this uh, Mediterranean region that Rome is ruling over to be uh, counted, to be registered. Joel Green highlights that uh, Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of one Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar thought of himself as a god. And so inscriptions are written about Caesar Augustus that would say he is the son of a god. And so here, this son of a god is counting his power and his authority, and he calls all of these people to be registered. It is this man who moves all the known world to be counted for the sake of his own glory collecting, right? He's uh, stating his purpose and his power over all of this land. It seems a statement of pride and arrogance. Now, notice how this affects Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph, they travel to Bethlehem in verses 4 and 5 because Joseph is a descendant from David, and they have to go back to their hometown to Bethlehem. And our text gives us this kind of little nugget that's happening here, right? It says that he's going back to the city of David. We might kind of just read over that and gloss over it, but the truth is this morning, if we were to go back into 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel chapter 5, the city of David was the city of Jerusalem. David had conquered Jerusalem and he named that city the city of David. And so uh, 2 Samuel 5 and 6 actually record the story of the conquering of Jerusalem, the renaming of it as the city of David, and then the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David. It's the story of God coming to dwell with his people. So why does Luke borrow that term here this morning? Well, isn't that exactly what we're dealing with here in the incarnation? How does God come to dwell with his people? He comes to dwell with his people in the backwards nature of the birth of Christ that we're going to hear about, not in the glorious counting of Caesar Augustus. It's the juxtaposition of this royal authority in Rome who's moving all the pawns of his kingdom around and the Lord Jesus who is born in the backwoods of Bethlehem. 
who's placed in a feeding trough, who's wrapped with swaths of linen. This Jesus doesn't come with worldly glory. See, Luke reminds us here in verse 5 that Luke, uh, Mary's fiancé was with child. And what happens is they kind of take this long trek from uh, Galilee up to Bethlehem. That's like a 100-mile, 80-mile trek. It's a 1,000 feet uphill, as it were. And so this is going to kind of be taxing for this pregnant woman. And sure enough, when they get into town, there's no provision. There's no shelter for them there. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus is birthed in these less than ideal conditions, right? He's born away from his home. He's born in a probably what is a stable or some kind of uh, place for animals, right? He's wrapped in these strips of linen and laid in a feeding trough for animals, See, the upshot of this is simple. Jesus is not given a king's entry into the world. Caesar Augustus sits comfortably in his palace in Rome. And he moves the world around in places and people and things. And the Lord of heaven himself comes and is born next to a goat. <laughs> or a whatever. I, I can't name Middle Eastern farm animals at this point. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't have that in my notes. You and I probably don't think regularly about Caesar Augustus. We don't think regularly about uh, historical characters like Franklin Roosevelt or Henry Ford or whoever else it may be. Even the most notable people among us, the, those who were most glorious in their day, 50 years after their death, they're forgotten. It's a reminder to us that because our lives are short, our glory is short-lived, isn't it? Caesar Augustus is here. He's moving the pawns around, as it were. He's uh, making a namesake for himself. He's exerting his power and his authority. And you and I go day to day, barely ever thinking about Caesar Augustus or any Caesar other than Caesar's salad dressing, right? See, Psalm 90 reminds us that our life is short. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. It's like our, our, our years, our energy are just spent and spent and spent until we get to those last 10, 15 years. And it's like we just kind of go out like this, uh, this sigh of breath, right? We go out without a bang, as it were. We decrease in meaning and efficiency until we finally die. Jason, you're saying, Jason, this is a depressing sermon so far. What are you trying to say? See, our glory-building efforts end in failure one way or another. Either we fail to procure glory, glory for ourselves, or our glory is entirely forgotten shortly after our life is over. You know, most of our efforts to build a name for ourselves end up like the Tower of Babel. You guys remember that story, right? We were in Genesis a couple years back. It's Genesis chapter 11. These, uh, these people kind of gather together and they say, hey, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves so that we might not be scattered across the earth. And so they kind of gather together and they say they're going to build a tower to the heavens. And, and God kind of looks down from heaven and he squelches this idea by confusing their language. But all of our glory building efforts end up kind of in the same way, a pile of rubble, a bunch of confusion and the separation of ourselves from one another. Every time we try to procure glory for ourselves, it ends up failing. 
It's a reminder of the words of Jeremiah to his prophet or to his uh, um, scribe. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. This morning, when we try to build glory, we recognize we always fall miserably on our face. Even in our success, we find failure that were makes to make sense. Let's see how God exhibits his glory in this passage. See, that word is going to start to pop up in our text this morning. It's not just kind of in the statements about Caesar Augustus, this glory building effort. We're going to find this word kind of work its way through our passage this morning. I'm going to invite you to verses 8 through 14 of chapter 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, this is what happens is this angel appears in glory to this shepherd. The the, uh, scene is kind of moved. Luke shifts the scene away from what's happening inside Bethlehem to what's happening outside of Bethlehem. And we go from the stable to the sheep field, as it were neither of, uh, of which would have been associated with revelations of glory. But as these shepherds watch their flocks, they're shown this glory. Look at verse 9. It says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That is, our word for today, glory, is right there in our passage. These angels show up shrouded in what? Not their own glory, but in the glory of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? They're not just here as messengers. They're not just relayers of information. They're not just to kind of uh, give you a message, as it were. They actually are portraying the glory of God in the presence of these shepherds. It's interesting that in Luke's gospel thus far, we've seen all kinds of statements about the showing up of glory and how it's associated with fear. In fact, that's what we see here in verse 9, that these shepherds are afraid because of the glory that's manifest. In chapter 1, verse 11, Zechariah is in the temple, and he sees the angel Gabriel, and he's afraid, right? Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. She is afraid in chapter 1, verse 30. Here in chapter 2, verse 9, these shepherds, they see this angel who's declaring this message to them, and they are afraid. But verses 10 and 12 kind of calm that fear. Look at what he says in verse 10. Excuse me, i got to turn my page back. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Right? Fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm bringing good news. I'm bringing gospel. That's that word, euangelion, right? It's where we get the word evangelism from. He's bringing this message of good news to these shepherds. What is that message? Verse 11, he says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
just look at that. Take, take a moment just to look at that verse in your Bibles, on your phone, whatever it is. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's three titles that's given to us about who this Jesus, or this child was going to be. First, Jesus is Savior, that he's come to deliver his people. We know this. We kind of traffic in these things. Every Sunday we get together, we retell the story of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. We hear that testimony, that glorious testimony from these kids this morning. We traffic in this idea that Jesus is Savior. This morning, Jesus came for you and for I to save us from our sinfulness. It's bound up in this identity that these shepherds or these angels proclaim to these shepherds that Jesus is Savior. He's not just Savior, He is Christ. And Christ just isn't Jesus' last name, y'all, right? Christ is a title. He's Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the snake crusher of Genesis chapter 3. He's the appointed heir to David's throne in 2 Samuel 7. There's no, or he's the one promised in Isaiah 9 that there would be no end to the increase of his government. He is this promised Messiah that we have read about as we've read the Old Testament time and time again, right? He's Savior. He's Christ. We might miss this one. He's Lord. The term here is kurios, kurios. It's uh, reserved for those of high esteem. Sometimes you find it in the New Testament to refer to masters or, or uh, those in authority. It's a, a kind of a reverent term. But it's also used of deity from time to time. It's used to describe the reverential respect that you would pay to a God. And so Luke is employing that term here. He's saying he's Savior, he's Christ, he's Lord. What's crazy here? This is what's funny to me. In verse 12, he promises this sign, right? So just imagine, we're going to fast forward a little bit. And in just a minute, it's like all of the the veil is going to be pulled back. And these shepherds are going to see a heaven filled with angelic presence. Something that they have never seen or will ever see again. They see all the night sky filled with the angelic presence. But what is the sign that's given to them? The sign is that this baby is wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. These are the, the things that are going to identify this chosen, anointed king. Not the angelic presence. Swaddling cloths and a feeding trough. The poverty in which this Savior exists is going to be the way by which they identify Him. So, verse 13 show us, shows us what happens, right? These angels show up in the night sky, and look at what they say. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Mary and Joseph's, or excuse me, the shepherd's eyes are open to see this heavenly host. We don't know how many there were. Uh, it says that there's a crowd or a, a, a multitude, a populace, but uh, needless to say, the vision itself would have been striking. But the message they speak is, is so telling, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What are they saying? Let's go back and let's just think through the times that we've heard the angelic presence declare God's praise in his courtroom, in his 
throne room. We think of passages like Isaiah chapter 6, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see Revelation chapter 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But here, these angels kind of switch up their message and they say, maximum glory, glory to God in the highest. These angels have adjusted their statement, giving the present circumstance. In fact, they spell out what is exactly most glorious in this phrase, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, the thing that brings the most glory to our God is his providing of a Savior, Jesus Christ. As the angels declare this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. They are describing the means by which God is most glorified in the person of His own Son, Jesus. I don't know if you ever, my my kids and I, we love this show. It's called Monk. I don't know if you've ever watched it. It's about this man who has OCD and he he works as an inspector of uh, crime scenes and whatnot, right? And he's this great detective. He works in this, and almost every show goes the same way, right? There's a a crime scene, and Monk shows up, and he finds the one thing that's out of place, this little piece of evidence that's wrong. And so he determines to kind of hunt down the the actual meaning of what happened, right? See, this morning, there's something that's somewhat out of line with our text. This description that's happening here with the angelic presence glory being stated, the glory of the Lord showing up to these shepherds. All of these things, if we were kind of students of the Old Testament, we would think to think that that would happen in the tabernacle or in the temple. We would think that that would be a commonly stated thing that we would find uh, in, in, in the place where God was, right? It's the glory of the Lord that shows up and fills the temple in Exodus chapter 40. It's the glory of the Lord that consumes the first sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 9. It's the glory of the Lord that appears at the entrance of the tent of meeting in Numbers 14. It's the glory of the Lord that shows up at Solomon's dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 7. See, God's presence always comes with his glory. And so every time God takes up residence in some kind of temple or tabernacle or the tent of meeting or whatever else it might be, that's where the glory is. And so this is a little strange. It's kind of out of place for us this morning that here God's glory has kind of hit the road. It's gone on tour as it were. Wouldn't we think that God would have his glory show up in the temple that's not five miles away? Wouldn't that make the most sense to us? That God would descend in His glory and show His glory in the temple. But no, He shows up in the shepherd's field outside of Bethlehem, of all places. And really this serves, it shows two things to us, right? First, it's an indictment of the temple system, which Luke is going to show us time and time again that that Jesus is kind of opposed to these religious authorities, that he's not going to condone their religious system, that the presence of God is outside of the temple, like Ezekiel has kind of told us what's going to happen. Second, it shows us that God's glory has come to the least of these. That God's glory has been made manifest to shepherds, not to priests, 
not to kings, not to high priests, not to those in authority. God's glory has come to the least, to the shepherds, to the stinky ones who live out with the animals in the fields. See, in God's kingdom, glory was to be shown to those those whom God desired to show it. it. It would seem that the glory is God's to reveal, not ours to earn. So what we see in verses 15 through 20 is just so full of grace. So full of mercy and kindness from God. We should rejoice this morning as those who are probably not Jewish in our heritage, those who are thousands of miles from Jerusalem, those who have no biological ties to the the family line of Abraham, we should thank God this morning that God came out of His temple, that He extended Himself to lowly sinners. Let's read about that in verses 15 through 20. True glory prompts response. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. See, what's happening in our passage is there's this kind of play upon the word tell, right? There's four usages in this uh, this word tell. It's said in verse 17, told in verses 17, 18, and 20. And what's happening is this conveying of information. This information travels from the shepherds to Mary and the host that's there around the child. And then they all kind of process what they're doing with what they've been told. So the shepherds tell one another in verses 15 and 16. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem, right? They, they interact with one another. They're prompted by this view of glory and they have to go investigate, right? Shocker. Verse 17 tells us that the shepherds tell others what they've heard. Look what they say in verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. So they report, the shepherds tell this group that has gathered in Bethlehem. And then in verses 18 and 20, people wonder at what they've been told. Look at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds what told them. Verse 20 uh, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as that had been told to them. See, what Luke is inviting us to see is this conveying of information and the resulting interaction that happens in all of these characters. Mary is pondering these things in her heart. The shepherds are glorifying and praising God for this revelation that they have received. At, at the end of the day, all of our characters are processing what they've heard. The retelling of the good news creates a string of responses. The crowd wonders in verse 18. Mary ponders in verse 19. And the shepherds praise in verse 20. Do you see what's happening here? God has engaged people with His revealed glory. He's told them of this glory 
It lay in a feeding trough. This morning, as we kind of step back from this story, and we see that there's this juxtaposition, right? Caesar, Augustus, sits in his throne room and he moves men around like pawns, but Jesus is born into cattle stall, placed into a feeding trough, wrapped in impoverished linen. And all of this is good news to those who are really looking for it, right? See, this morning we recognize that glory holds promise for the hopeless. Our glory falters, doesn't it? No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try to build a name for yourself at your workplace or in your hobbies or whatever else it might be, no matter how hard you apply yourself to those tasks, you will be forgotten. If you apply yourself to your efforts at work, you try to become the best uh, TPS report writer that you can possibly be. I guarantee it will be short-lived you try to apply yourself to this or that or the other, amongst the world of men, it will not move beyond your life, at least not very far. See, you and I don't possess glory on our own. Our best best endeavors uh, fail or are forgotten, as we said. In the statement from Paul in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Piper describes that this is like a, a glory ledger, In chapter 1, in Romans 1, right, we exchange the glory of God, and then when we get to chapter 3, it's like we've found to have no glory whatsoever. We've sold off our glory. But it's worth knowing that God bestows glory. He shows us glory in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul has this statement in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 that I think is fascinating. I'm going to pull up 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We've all heard this verse before. Paul writes this. He says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, Paul tells us that beholding glory changes us. The background of this statement is that uh, Paul is describing this life of Moses. Moses would go and he would enter into this tent of meeting. He would uh, kind of have a face-to-face with the presence of God, and he would come away from it, and his face would like glow with this glory that he had beheld. It wouldn't be problematic other than it faded. And so as days and weeks passed, the glory would fade away. So Moses would put a veil over his face because, in essence, it was like the the glory would go away. It's like the difference between batteries and a power cord, right? If you put batteries into the thing, it's slowly going to live out its life, and then it will be done. And Moses' glory was going to fade away. But when you plug in the power cord to the wall, it has this seeming unending energy. What Paul is describing here in 2 Corinthians 3 is this ongoing renewal of glory because the Spirit lives inside of us. As we behold glory, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're perpetually being made new, increasing in righteousness, increasing in conformity to the glory and the shape of Jesus Christ. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You might step away and say, Jason, this is pretty 
theoretical. I don't know what you're talking about here. We're talking about how you and I can be changed. If we're looking for something glorious, like we started off with these cottingly fairies, we found it in the person of Jesus Christ. God has shown us his glory, first and foremost, through his own Son. And that is the way in which we are renewed time and time again. 2 Corinthians 4, just a few verses after this, verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see glory in Christ. We behold glory unto life change. It seemed to me that as we understand who Jesus is, Jesus who came and he lived a flawless life, Jesus who offered hope to so many, he, he healed, he interacted with love and care for all of those around him. He went to a cross, he laid down his life, he was resurrected in power upon our belief in Jesus Christ. You and I are transformed. We see Glory in Christ unto our transformation. Look at what happens in our passage. These shepherds minding their own business, doing the things they do, behold glory. And they go from being shepherds to witnesses and from witnesses to worshipers. Even Mary here, who's been promised so much in Luke chapter 1, is invited to a deeper reflection upon who her son will be. There's a transformative element that happens when we understand who Christ is. For some of us this morning, it's like Christmas becomes this kind of just vague statement about the goodness of God in sending Jesus. It's about love and peace and harmony. And uh, it feels like the beauty contest answers are just right around the corner, right? World peace, you know, those kind of things. Truthfully, what we're talking about and why we celebrate this season is because of the hope that's bound up in this person, Jesus Christ. Because you and I are longing for something deeper. We, we know there's a world on the other side of the veil, and Christ is our entry into that world. Christ is the sacrifice that, that makes us right with God. Christ is the, the living Savior that advocates on our behalf before his throne. Christ is the means by which we enter into that spiritual life, that spiritual reality that we long for. This morning, if we're not in Christ, the cross doesn't look too glorious to us. But in essence, it's the same expression as what we see here in Luke chapter 2. It's outside the city of Jerusalem. It's not veiled in glorious things as we would see them. The cross looks like shame. So does this manger scene. See, Jesus came showing glory in this upside down world that he was showing us. And right now, in 2023, our God is inviting us to see that same upside-down world, to, to bank on truly glorious things in the face and work of Jesus Christ. I say, what does this mean? What does this have to do with us? See, the truth is, is that glory changes us. 
So the best thing you can do this holiday season is pursue glorious things. Is pursue something worth following. Don't be bound up with this or that or the other Christmas bonus or whatever else it might be. Be bound up with the glories and nature of Jesus Christ. Seek his face in all things. It's the beginning of life change. It's the beginning of rich communion with our God. wonder if we might be those people who seek true glory. Not for ourselves, not through the amassing of fortunes or the applying of ourselves to our labors so that we can build a name for ourselves. Rather, it's the pursuit of the glorious face of Jesus Christ the self-affronting nature of our gospel, that we would say, it's not about me. This is about the glories of our God and Christ. I want to pray to this end. I'm going to ask you to pray with me that we would be shaped and formed by this glory. Lord, I ask now that you would do this, that you would accomplish this. Not to us, oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Lord, we recognize this morning that your truth sanctifies us, changes us. Your glory changes us. So, Lord, we long for that. We long to be shaped and changed by our interactions with you through your word and in your spirit. Give us a rich communion with you. As Jesus promised, make your home with us so that we might be shaped and formed by you. Lord, as we're shaped and formed by you, I pray, Lord, that you would engage this world, that you would allow us to speak your truth in your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.